objection to the rule, the Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air with my co-host Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith and our special guest, film director John Wellington Ennis. Good afternoon, everybody, or evening, I guess. How you guys doing? <laughs> good. Hi. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, this well. is, it's Thursday night, the 29th, for when we're recording for our live, or no longer live Sunday. <laughs> Exactly. But it's good to hear from you guys. It's been a weird rainy day. It's like a mellow mood um, Thursday. But nonetheless, we're going to have a great show for you. So this week we have a special interview um, with our film director, John Wellington Ennis, who is also a host on RFB called Proper Propaganda. Uh, We're going to be talking about Walter Wallace and what's happening in Philadelphia, a vote for a new constitution in Chile, and some good news about renewable energy in Australia. So we're going to kick it off with our special local news segment. And Emily Emily has our interview for today. I do. I do. Thank you for handing it off, Teresa. Um, so John Wellington Ennis, hello. Welcome. You're doing all Hi, right today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to yeah. uh, be on RFB on a different show that like talks back to me. You know, I do yes, my show. Yeah. Alone, so it's like so alive. I'm like the energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually I I um I've heard your show before and it's really cool. Uh for any listeners interested in checking it out, he mixes uh it's a hip hop music hour with and you you mix like news like brief news clips into the music. It's really cool. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an awesome experience. Um but you're here specifically cuz you're also a documentarian and uh, a film producer and director. Um, and you have a new documentary coming out soon called Fish in a Barrel. Um, do you want to introduce that for the audience? I had the opportunity to watch it last night. I don't want to give too much away, you know. Awesome. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Fish in a Barrel started out as uh, my looking for a response when there's still so little um, action taken after every mass shooting. Why does that keep happening? And so uh, in looking for ways to be able to tell that story um, after, particularly after the Parkland shooting in 2018, um, I had set out to make a documentary and explore these huge, you know, issues within the, uh, the gun debate and how we got here. And then the Senate Finance Committee just happened to release this uh, report that I found when I was in a line at, a, at an airport and it was it said the NRA in Russia, how a tax exempt organization became a foreign asset. And I was like, shut the front door. Are you kidding me, dude? Is it just like it's just like that? So um, I did something which I'd never done before. I, I, I've made you know several feature documentaries before, but this was, you know, I, I actually built a documentary around a Senate report, which was an interesting experience because they've in turn had documented so many uh, articles and reports by independent journalists uh, following this case that it became, you know, a good way to try to uh, pin down what a lot of people knew is the story about like Maria Butina, this uh, redheaded Russian uh, gun activist that was an NRA uh, uh stalwart and uh, ended up being you know convicted for being a foreign agent uh for russia and so um this was an opportunity to sort of dive into that sort of wild story and at the same time uh list every single crime virtually that the nra had committed is uh, both in campaign and uh, international law 
Um, and it's interesting because uh, it was at the uh, very end of my working on this film that the uh, Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, announced her uh, lawsuit of dissolution against the NRA for a number of the issues that we brought up in the film. So it was uh, striking to me. I mean, that was August. And so I, would, I pretty much just finished. And then that's right where she came up. And that's kind of where the film ends now, because that's, you know, pretty up to the minute. And so it's just kind of crazy how much, you know, other people have been working on this when so many other things are going on, you know, obviously over the last four years as we try to figure out how the hell we got here and how we get out of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, you make, yeah, you go really in depth into the NRA and into Russia and their connection with Russia and into the 2016 election as well. And, um, you know, watching it, I was like, oh, it's so perfect that we're going to have you on for the last uh, show we have before the 2020 election. Um, you know, gulp. <laughs> gulp, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is airing on um, November 1st. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I want to ask a few questions about each of those things. Um, and the movie first talks about the NRA and the gun laws in this country. And there's one phrase that really stuck with me about, there seems to be this assault on logic going on in this country mm. when it comes to gun laws. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about like why we don't have just common sense gun laws in this country and how frustrating it is and how it kind of feels like we're being gaslit by some of the Congress members. Absolutely. You know, and it's really interesting because <clears throat> the film starts out with uh, me at the uh, March for Our Lives in Los Angeles in 2018, asking people, uh, what would you like to change and why do you think things don't change? And it was interesting how much, you know, like the teenagers, the college students were able to speak to some general truths like, I don't think I should have to live under lockdown drills or worry about my siblings. And uh, the adults would be able to point out very specific uh, reforms that they're looking for and they'll be able to like rattle it off because they've lived through it. They've gone through it. They've heard all the arguments. They're like, we've got to ban bump stocks. We got to do background checks. We got to ban domestic abusers from ever owning a firearm. Like we've gone through it. We've seen this shit. And so um, when I was researching this, I was struck to come across footage from 20 years ago at the million moms March of uh, Rosie O'Donnell leading 750,000 people uh, at the Washington mall saying uh, a lot of these same things. And it was really eerie to me to see so many people had come together for so long and it's actually gotten so much worse since 2000 as have our elections. And so um, the fact that those are so intertwined is at least that's my forte. You know, my previous documentaries, uh, my first uh, feature was a free for all. And uh, I follow I went through Ohio after the 2004 election, trying to understand the voter suppression and election fraud that had happened there. And then I organized Video the Vote as a volunteer election corps uh, during the 2006 election. And so that film came out in 2008. And then in 2013, uh, 14, I came out with a film Pay to Play, which is about how money had overtaken our political process. And this was about Citizens United and the Koch brothers and Alec and a lot of things that people didn't know about at the time that now, thankfully we talk about a lot more. So 
I'm not someone who's going to know like the intricacies of the Supreme Court decisions from 2012 or whatever it was. And, you know, that's a whole new field for me. But I know campaign finance laws and I was executive director of a nonprofit and I'm a member of one right now, Radio Free Brooklyn. And so I actually learned about nonprofit laws. And so to see the stuff that the NRA has been doing, I was like, oh, I would get in so much trouble for that. You were busted. No way, dude. Um, And so a lot of the reason that the NRA has been able to get away with uh, you know, using sort of shell front groups to fund elections, uh, fund senator elections and uh, coordinate with the Trump campaign and launder uh, money, allegedly, uh, from Russia, uh, specifically Alexander Torshin, a Russian banker and senator and gangster. Um, the reason they're able to do this is, you know, it comes down to uh, and a lot of a lot of things. They come down to Mitch McConnell. And it's, I feel like, you know, Mitch McConnell is one of those things you have to have like the talk about with people in life. You're like, you got to say one guy realized that you could just be obstructionist to the core at every single turn Mm. and end up playing the system. And so one of the ways that he did that was appoint commissioners to the Federal Elections Commission, which was created after Watergate. And that was uh, comprised of uh, three Republicans, three Democrats, and their role was to adjudicate campaign finance crimes. And so... Uh, Don McGahn, who was a uh, now a the lead lawyer for the Trump campaign, was appointed a commissioner, and as you could imagine, was uh, tried to play it in the vein of Mitch McConnell and uh, Trump, and uh, obstructed at every turn. And so uh, the FEC was basically uh, unable to function because the three Republican commissioners would vote in lockstep against anything being enforced, and so this created the. Uh, the opportunity for unregulated internet ads to take over uh, leading into the 2016 election. You know, this allows for the NRA to continue to be able to keep spending without having been taken out for any of the number of uh, campaign finance laws that's broken. And so the, uh, as people start to realize how this is uh, continually broken and there's actually just happened to be another story that came out just yesterday by Mike Spees, who's, uh, research and reporting led to a lot of this whole documentary because he was able to first find out how and show the records of how the Trump campaign and the NRA coordinated in 2016, which is illegal. And he illustrated that by showing how they used the same vendors and the same employees even buying ad time at the same time, all of which is coordination, all of which is really plat- uh, patently illegal. So uh, when you see how people continue to uh, you know, go straight at, you know, just breeze right by the laws and the law enforcement, um, then you can start to understand how our gun laws have continued to be, uh, you know, frankly, you know, any regulations shot down. And as you see in the film, you know, the senators, Republican senators rely on misinformation that they're uh, stoking their base with, that the NRA is uh, feeding them, knowing that it's absolutely the opposite of what's in the modest legislation that Democrats are trying to put forward. And so after a certain point, I mean, I'm a father now, but, you know, I think we've lived in terror of guns for so long that in this recent election, the opportunity to, um, to you know, guns became the, the biggest issue for me in this election and when I was looking at candidates and it's not just because it was the only thing I cared about. It was like, look, if you can't take this on, if you can't like start to take this whole like 
uh, wall apart of, of BS and donor money and fraud. And, you know, if you can't like, you know, stand up for dead kids who can't defend themselves, like, you know, are you really the leader for this time? And so I'm glad to see that that's become, you know, front and center for the Democrats in this election, because it's, it's part of the turning point that, you know, now that we're living through COVID, you're like, wow, you just really don't care about other people's lives. Okay. I think we got to reassess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you covered a bunch of stuff in that answer too. I was going to try and get to the federal elections commission, basically being a non-functioning entity was like mind blowing. Like I, I absolutely had no idea that, um, like I, I've heard of some shady shit that certain campaigns were doing and I just had no idea that they were basically working with like impunity. Like it didn't matter because there's yeah, no, that's the thing. <clears throat> yeah. Wild. It's sort of like the false advertising police. Like there's somebody to look after this. Right. Right. And you know, <laughs> reality is, is that like, you know, even the F, you know, the FEC, it takes so long to try to follow up on this stuff. It's so long after campaigns, you know, when, when people finally get busted. And so, uh, but, the uh, the story that Mike Spees came out with yesterday for ProPublica was about how uh, one woman who is the heir to uh, to Don McGahn at the FEC uh, took his mantle and really ran with it. And so, um, but I, I'm glad that we have journalists like that. And and honestly, with this film, I just elevated so many journalists reporting and tried to put it together, even if it feels like a slideshow at times, just because it's like, we got to connect these dots, even if it's with like receipts and like social media clippings, because people have to understand that this NRA thing is just a racket. It has nothing. They really don't care about guns. They're really just trying to sell as many guns as they can, expensive guns, uh, because they represent the gun industry. And uh, they're so far gone from whatever they used to be that people remember them as. Absolutely. And that was another thing I wanted to get to. Also, you already mentioned uh, Letitia James's announcement that, you know, the filing of a lawsuit in New York State to dissolve the NRA. And we, we've we had that story on our show before. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, like, based on the research you've done for your documentary, like, how do you think that's going to play out? Do you think it's going to work or do you think that the NRA is going to pull all the tricks it knows how to pull and somehow get away? Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you, the NRA is going to throw so much money at this thing for years, and it's not going to be over quickly. But uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, Attorney General James uh, dismantled the Trump organization under the same auspices, I would have uh, faith that she'd be able to get do the same thing, however long it might take and whatever kinds of uh, elections they try to wait out to see if they can get rid of her. So... Um, you know, the reality is, is that it's, it, it's so many, and what our film was specifically targeted at was the S was the IRS removing the tax exempt status nationally of the NRA. Uh, and AG James's lawsuit is against the dissolution against the NRA, which was founded in New York. And, um, and specifically because they broke so many nonprofit laws. And of course I have to learn the difference that nonprofit is what they call it. They say at the state level and tax exempt is what they say at the federal level. So the, uh, the idea that they've got so much around them, you know, that you have to distinguish between the federal and state violations of, of uh, nonprofit tax exempt laws is just incredible. And if I'm able to connect all these things in a documentary on my computer and I'm just some dude, like, I mean, it, it's pretty guilty. It's pretty extenuous and uh, it, it's, it's hard for them to run away from. And so, 
uh, I, I'd imagine that it, there would be a reincorporation of gun owners at some point under a different name. And this will sort of be a grandfather of corruption. It went away. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. I mean, it's, it's hard to see what's happening in Congress right now, you know, to keep it topical with the Senate, uh, not Senate, the Supreme court nominee getting like pushed down our throats and, Mm -hmm. you know, and not think that there's really, you know, it doesn't really matter what, what's right and wrong sometimes. (laughs) I mean, it it sucks. It really sucks. It's brutal. And, and, and as I've seen, you know, uh, from working in my, uh, in the voter suppression field, there's, uh, you know, we learned that there's a huge, uh, blowback after huge backlash after there's uh, major progress in, um, in African-Americans, uh, in franchisement in America. And so going back to the reconstruction. And so, you know, after Obama, we just, you know, you saw the tidal wave coming. You just didn't know how big it was going to go and how far it was going to go and, I, and how far it was going to last. And I think that we're, we're sort of finally getting at the end of that because we've seen how much all that like hatred and pettiness, uh, you know, has to show for it. And, you know, I mean, it's not just that like Trump left his rally goers to pass out in the freezing cold in Omaha like a couple days ago, just today, just right now he's in Tampa in like 94 degree heat and his rally goers are passing out and he's yelling at them, trying to make sure that they're actual supporters and not like protesters trying to cause a scene and threatening to beat them up. Like he's so like lost the script by now and like has nothing to really run on or, I mean like Bush had a war to unite people with, there were like things, you know, so the fact that right. this is where white grievance has like gotten us at this point is sort of like, okay, yeah, I think you're about to get your clock cleaned. Um, so uh, this, the Supreme Court power grab and stuff is is mm-hmm. definitely on par for like, I mean, you know, the de-legitima- delegitimization of the court by both Brett Kavanaugh's uh, terrible uh, opinion about uh, ballots, mm-hmm. which should be counted, and um, Amy Barrett's appointment, who's wholly unqualified and it was clearly a political operative gaming this from Mm -hmm. the 2000 election since she was on the Mm -hmm. bush team along with two other members of the supreme court now so uh Hmm. you know the the politicization of our institutions you know unfortunately so much of it goes back to the 2000 election and the bush rove playbook and so wow uh it's so sad (laughs) it's it's hard what's it's rough, but that's really like the story yeah. that like all three of these films tell. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And um, we are inching closer to the end of our interview segment, but I did want to ask, you know, you talk a lot in the documentary about the things playing out with Russia and the election in 2016. And I'm wondering how you see, if you see the same thing happening again in 2020, if it's different in your view or if it's like the yeah, same well, exact thing. And, that, and it's really interesting because, um, and this is my personal experience and this is up to the minute I can tell everyone, um, is that the irony of me trying to run uh, trailers on social media about my documentary now out on iTunes and Amazon uh, is that social media platforms would reject the video for being political because they now have many self-imposed guidelines about running political videos, certainly so close to an election. Um, I had to upload a copy of my passport to Google to prove that I was a citizen for them to promote 
a video of mine. And they wouldn't even like choose the more political of the two trailers. They, you know, I had to choose the one like, you know, if you show a candidate, then that's like a political ad. If that's if you show like uh, if you mention elections, even since 2016, that's a political ad. So like me showing Jimmy Kimmel joking about uh, the NRA not caring about getting money from Russians was about as much as I could get. So like, you know, the reality of like how much harder it is to get anything out, like Facebook, forget it, dude. Okay. You saw the one clip. There's a, there's a little animated uh, montage of NRA's lavish lifestyles and all the stuff they blew their money on. And that's what the AG James's lawsuit is over. Like that clip is the only thing that Facebook would let me promote. And I'm glad I'm doing it because so many angry, like right wingers are commenting on it. Like, well, what about Nancy Pelosi's ice cream? No joke. Twice. Twice people have commented that um, wow. in response to like $65 million of, of uh, you know, NRA waste. So um, it's definitely a different, uh, different frontier this time around. Oh, wow. and, and it seems like so many more, so many more people are voting. It could be up to like 40 more, 40 million people who didn't vote in 2016 wow. might be voting now. So it's wow. just, it's such an astonishing amount when people realize their responsibility. So um Wow. Um, I'm uh, optimistic about Tuesday. Wow. 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 Well, uh, John Ennis, it has been an absolute pleasure having you. Um, this has been an awesome discussion. Um, is there any last thoughts or ideas you want the audience to hear before we finish up this interview? Uh, you know, yeah, whoever, wherever you are, you know, in whatever state you might be listening to this in or elsewhere, you know, uh, you have the ability to, to contest the election results, even if we're talking state or local. And so as much as you might wait for people nationally to notice, like you have an actual like claim and responsibility to follow up on stuff if it's in your area. So whatever happens next week, there will be definitely election meltdowns. But, um, you know, with our vigilance, that's how they get improved. And so I think we're going to see more and more improvements. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, and then if people want, uh, I guess, how do people find your documentary? How can they find more of your work if they're interested? Sure. Uh, we have our website, fishinabarrel.org, and um, our documentary is now on Amazon, iTunes. Uh, it should be soon on Vudu, Google Play. Uh, it's on Vimeo. So uh, please spread the word. That's how this thing gets out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Jasmine, Teresa, do you guys have any questions or uh, should we just head to the musical break? No, definitely a dope interview. It was great learning about your approach and your project. And I'm looking forward to uh, watching your movie. I definitely watched the trailer and checked you out. And I want to check out your show as well. Thank thank you so much much. for being here, John. Oh, you bet. And thanks for doing the show. Yeah, thanks for dropping by. Absolutely. We appreciate it. And thank you, Emily, for that great interview pleasure (laughs) yes thank you awesome so we're gonna go ahead and jump right into our first musical break for the day uh we have some dope music for you today it's november so we got some new tracks a throwback a little jazz um the first track is a bluesy record by an r&b and gospel singer and actress and civil rights activist mavis staples if you've never heard of this woman you should definitely check her out the joint is called change we'll be right back Oh, I love her song. I love Mavis Staples. Yeah, I love Mavis. I'm glad you guys I love, love it. I love her. it. I love her too. She still puts yeah, out great awesome. stuff too. She's awesome. I know this track is from uh, 2019. Awesome. That's awesome. Cool. All yeah. right, here we go. Got a change around here. 
Gotta change around here. Can't go on this way. Things gotta change around here. Say it loud, say it clear. Things gonna change around here. Fingers on the trigger around here. Fingers on the trigger around here. Bullets flying, mothers crying. We gotta change around here. Get it straight. Be sure that you hear things gonna change around here. What good is freedom if we haven't learned to be free? What good is freedom if we haven't learned to be free? Day after day, year after year, we're gonna change around here. objection to the rule your sunday afternoon news hour on radio free brooklyn and up next is jasmine with our national news segment hello so as i'm sure a lot of you have seen uh, there was another highly publicized shooting of a unarmed black person or in this case he did have something in his hand he had a dinner knife in his hand Um, 27-year-old Walter Wallace Jr. of Philadelphia was fatally shot by police um, this past Monday. Uh, This information that I'm going to give to you now is from MSN. The journalist who wrote it is Ashley Coleman. So Walter Wallace Jr. was shot dead by two Philadelphia police officers on October 26th in the afternoon as he walked toward them holding a knife and his family says it was a dinner knife. So not like a machete or something super big, but something you would have at the table. His parents held a press conference on Tuesday and said the police were aware that their son was having a mental health crisis and that officers had been called to the house three times on Monday. Wallace's mother named Kathy 
said that during one of their visits, the officers, quote, stood there and laughed at us, according to the Associated Press. On the final police call, Wallace's brother had called for an ambulance, but police officers were sent to the scene instead, according to the family's attorney. Wallace was a father of nine, and his wife was expecting a 10th child when he was killed. His wife was due to be induced um, into labor on Wednesday. The two police officers who showed up fired more than a dozen shots at Wallace on Monday as he walked towards them and ignored repeated requests to put the weapon down. Wallace later died in the hospital. There was a bystander video that was released on social media um, I happen to see it by accident. I tend to try to avoid those things, but you can see Wallace's mother trying to defuse the situation in the moments before the shooting. So she was saying, and if you saw the clip, I'm not encouraging anyone to seek it out, but in the bystander video, you can hear and see his mother very close to him saying, don't shoot. And also other people on the block that knew him were saying, do not shoot. So Kathy says, I was telling the police to stop. Don't shoot my son. They paid me no mind and they just shot him. Kathy Wallace told reporters in her home on Tuesday night. So Wallace suffered from a bipolar disorder. He was just having a mental health crisis at the time, but it was known that he was someone with that type of medical condition. And I wanted to bring out this other quote from a Time article called Black Disabled and at Risk, the Overlooked Problem of Police Violence Against Americans with Disabilities. And in that article, um, a lawyer and activist named Haben Girma says, the danger for people with mental illnesses and other disabilities is also born of police departments' compliance culture. Anyone who doesn't comply, the police move on to force, she said. The approach doesn't work when police interact with someone who doesn't react in the way that they expect. On NPR, there was an interview recently with um, reporter Peter Crimmins, who works for WHYY, that serves the Philadelphia area. And he told NPR that within hours of the shooting, hundreds of people moved into the street to vent their anger. Over 90 people were arrested and about 30 police officers were injured, mostly by rocks and bricks that were thrown at them. The following day on Tuesday, there were marches and organized protests. And there was even a community dialogue with the city's chief of police for the residents to try to come to terms with police. But Crimmins says ultimately that fell into chaos. Protesters clashed with riot police late into the night. And in a different neighborhood on the other side of town, there was widespread looting at a shopping center. And um, we also had some people that were protesting in solidarity um, against police brutality in Brooklyn here um, and the police were out in force and there were m quite a few arrests and they, I, haven't, I haven't seen a lot of um, cohesive stories written about what happened here in New York but there's been tons of clips and people tweeting about what they saw like at some of these protests in downtown Brooklyn.
Oh, wow. I didn't know they were protesting in Brooklyn. I definitely seen um, the story and um, very concerned for the people of Philadelphia, which they have a huge history of police brutality in that city and just always have um, stories like this of racial unrest. Yeah, there was a woman and it was in Brooklyn where um, there were like 30 people arrested. There were a bunch of people that were locked up for protesting in New York. I think it was yesterday. So we're recording this on Thursday. Um, What I'm talking about happened yesterday on Wednesday. Wow. This is um this is a really rough story. I definitely have had an incident like this within my family. Uh, one of my family members suffers from a mental illness and had run-ins with the police that weren't so positive. Um, definitely glad he made it out, to be honest, especially when they're young. Um, I find that these stories often happen to, you know, people who are, um, you know, everyday people just trying to maintain their own family. But it's very difficult to maintain someone Um, in the face of police officers who are not even conscientious that something could be going on. I feel like they know, like it's obvious sometimes that they're aware that some, you know, somebody may have a disability or they're not understanding you. And they just always go to the most extreme force. They never even try to reason with people, which is awful. Yeah, I I agree with you. Like I also have um, loved ones with Um, different types of disabilities or mental health issues or, you know, there's people that deal with maybe it's not a mental health issue, but they might be struggling with addiction. And the fact that, especially having seen the video, I think what um, the activist said in the Time article about the culture of compliance, like the idea that you're going to do what, you're going to follow this verbal command immediately. And if you don't, that's reason enough to kill you. It's so, that's why, like, I think the statistic is is like up to half of the people that are killed by police in the U.S. have some form of a disability. If, what if you're deaf and you're moving your hands, you know, trying to reach for something, if someone yells at you to stop and you don't hear them, what do you think is going to happen? Like, if someone is suffering from dementia and they're wandering around or like they're having some type of mental health issue where they need help, they're not going to respond the way someone who is not in that situation is going to respond. So the idea that it was even acceptable to shoot someone, like I think I, what I've been reading is saying like 14 shots. It, there's, That's ridiculous. You can't tell me that someone who's walking around with his mother right next to him, the whole block is telling you, stop, no, don't do that, don't shoot. And between the two of you officers, one of you doesn't have the ability to knock a knife out of someone's hand. You know, like you you have all types of armor on you, like you felt that much in danger. You had to shoot at a man that many times. It's just there's there's no excuse for it. I, I totally agree. I think it's a really great example of what we talk about on the show a lot, which is like, who are the police there to protect? Right. Exactly. Like if the person who called you or who I don't, I did, I'm sorry. If I think you said the family member called cause they were concerned, but you know, if, if everyone who's there says stop and then they're, they're still moving forward. Like they got, they have their own agenda. They have their own like thing they're trying to accomplish that is not 
for the community that they're there for. It's so heartbreaking. And the fact that I came across the little snippet where his mother said that they were laughing at her and that just broke my heart. You know, like you're already dealing with you being afraid for your child because they're going through something like they're going through something as far as their health. And then to have the people show up that are supposed to be helping you, basically laughing at you in your face, it's just disgusting, you know? And I I believe the people that are protesting, whatever form that protest takes, you know, I'm on their side. Um, I think recently the lawyer and some people from the family were saying to pray for the police officer. I mean, I can't tell anybody else what to do, but I'm definitely not doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's there's so many layers when you talk about like police reform and defunding. And it's like, you know, when stories like this, it doesn't seem like anybody even used their brain at this moment. Like nobody even considered, you know, there was a time or maybe it was just rhetoric where police officers held some sort of, um, I don't know, status in society that they would, you know, uphold some sort of morality or some bullshit like that. You know, I'm just thinking about it when we were kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it almost was like a certain level of um, honor and respect, you know, and dignity that was that was about that. And we're so far away from that, that people just let their hatred just hang out there. Like to me, this is not an accident. Of course, it's not. It's fucking murder. 13 shots. Like you had no intention of trying to save this life or fix this problem. Like you didn't have an intention of fixing the problem at all. No. And I... I was reading that, you know, they were asked, like, you could, why didn't you just tase him? And then the response was that they, those officers didn't have tasers. And it's like, why do they have guns and not tasers? Like, why is the default guns? And, you know, maybe having Ennis on earlier talking about the NRA and just gun culture in this country is like a perfect, you know, connection with that point is like the default is a tool to kill. Like, that's what guns are. Right. And there, I saw... um Joe Biden and Kamala released a statement about, you know, another black life lost and everything. But there was this long paragraph about looting and rioting. And that's not the answer. And it's such a refrain you hear over and over. Violence isn't the answer. Violence isn't the answer. And then I saw a tweet yesterday that asked a very good question. And I wish I could remember who who said it, but they said, if violence isn't the answer, then why do the police have guns? If violence is is never the answer, then why is that? You know, and it's because that type, it's not that people who say that really believe it. They just think violence is only the answer when it's in the hands of people that it suits them that they have access to that violence. Whatever they do, there's an excuse, there's a reason for it. But then when you do have directed anger and you're using force to express that and to fight back, then all of a sudden that's not the answer. It wasn't the answer for Walter either. And look at what happened. You call for an ambulance and then they showed up ready to be violent. You know, probably agitating the man further because you're drawing guns at him. So, yeah, I mean, I know it's not, um, I picked it as a national story because, yeah, it's local to Philadelphia, but this is something that happens. You know, there's many Walter Wallace Wallace Juniors out there that we don't necessarily see them on the news, but this is a massive national problem. 
Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much for bringing us that story, Jasmine, and breaking it down um, as you always do. That was that was real deep, though, that quote that you had about they show up with guns. That's that's what they were designed for. Um, yeah, I will. Um, I will look for it. And so we can like cite the person. I'll try to remember to look for it and talk about it next week. But yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll jump right into our next musical selection today. So this is um, an updated throwback <laughs> from a classic tune by Teddy P. And the remake is by John Legend, Melanie Fiona, The Roots, and it features Common. This is Wake Up Everybody. We'll be right back. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking. Time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There is so much hatred, war and poverty. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. Cause they're the ones who's coming up and the world is in there. Sleeping in bed. Oh, wake up, everybody. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And before we jump into our international news segment, we have an update from Emily. Hello. Yes. So this is a Radio Free Brooklyn update on the Wall of Lies project. Um, So if you've been listening the last few weeks, you're a little bit familiar. You've been hearing on our show, maybe other shows about it. So RFB uh, rebuilt its wall of lies. It built a second one, which is its groundbreaking visual art project demonstrating the unprecedented lack of honesty from our current commander in chief. The original wall, which was first displayed in Bushwick uh, in Brooklyn, was vandalized with white supremacist slogans, including vote Trump or die and stand back and stand by. Uh, The new wall is twice as long as the original and is on public view at the northwest corner of Lafayette and Grand Streets in Soho, and it will be up until the 2020 election is decided, which it might not be Tuesday or Wednesday or even this week. So everyone just, you know, get all your self-care tools out (laughs) for November. Hang in Um, there. Yeah. And, you know, the wall is, is twice as big as the original. It's over 100 feet long. And it will inc- it includes Black Lives Matter themed artwork next to the mural provided by local artists. And you can learn more at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash Wall of Lies. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to have to make it over to check that out for sure. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right into our world news segment. Um, information from this story was drawn from an article on The Guardian by Kirsten Sendbrunch. Also from some information on BBC.com as well as NPR. So on Sunday, the people of Chile voted in favor of establishing a new constitution one year after uh, continuous social protests. The protests, which I think I reported on um, back when it actually happened, had originally been triggered by a fair hike on the Santiago Metro. And it drew a wide variety of Chileans who were angry about high levels of inequality in the country. So one of the key demands was to reform the old dictatorship era constitution that really put the private sector in control of health, education, housing, and pensions. So their their current constitution, which they're getting rid of, was written in 1989 by Augusto Pinochet's administration. And when the country became a democracy in 1990, authoritarian principles protected in this constitution also constrained the country's process of democratization. It played a significant role in creating political elites that kind of kept themselves in power for like a lifetime. Um, And it prevented the country from keeping the pace with social change and expectations. The previous constitution also established a voting system that initially overrepresented the political right and required supermajorities for reforming institutions such as armed forces or education. Um, so Pinochet, I'll keep ruining his name, Pinochet, I think that's his name. It's think, Pinochet. Pinochet, thank you. Uh, he was indicted okay. on more than 300 char- charges, including human rights abuses, and he was arrested in 1998. Opponents say that more than 3,000 people died as a consequence of political violence under his rule. Um, He died at age 91 in 2006, having served as an unelected, quote, life senator, being immune from prosecution and not having ever been convicted of any of his crimes. So in this election, more than 7.5 million people voted, which set a record for voter participation in Chile since 1988. 
Uh, an overwhelming majority of 79% also voted in favor of the new constitution being drawn up by a body which will be 100% elected by popular vote, rather than one that would have been made up of 50% of the members of their Congress. So the voters will return to the ballot boxes in April of 2021 and choose the 155 people who will make up the convention, um, which will draw up the new constitution. The convention will have nine months with an option of one time, a one-time extension for three months to come up with the new text. And the new constitution is supposed to be put in, out for the Chilean people in another referendum in 2022. So many people believe that the new constitution is about social justice. This is a pretty cool fact. Uh, Chile will now be the first country to draft a constitution with equal participation of women after a bill that was approved in March guaranteeing gender equality. The new constitution obviously will not automatically resolve the problems that caused the protests and then trouble the country, but it should make the political process more legitimate and force political elites to be more inclusive and accountable. Um, so when I was learning about this story, I was just like, wow, could that ever happen here? <laughs> I seriously doubt it, but I think this is a really interesting concept. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I totally remember, um, us doing the, you or you, I guess would have been the one doing the story about Chile's protest starting over the Metro hike. Yeah. I remember like that. Was that like a year ago? Over a year <laughs> yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was, it was early ago. 2019, I think. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a lifetime ago. Yeah. I mean, I think it, this is a cool story just because it's actually possible. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, 7.5 million people of the country voted for this. And, you know, it's it's a little scary to think that they will have now have to select 155 people to write the new text. They're planning mm -hmm. to take it from, you know, members of civil society and, you know, leaders of um, social justice organizations. But I really hope that it reflects, you know, some common day challenges that the country faces. And I mean, how incredible for it to be like the writers to be equally represented from you know yes females. isn't that interesting <laughs> it's like i mean yeah it's it's like duh but also like as we know the world works it's not like that doesn't just happen so that's yeah. great yeah i i think um between this story and also the story on what happened in brazil with their election um that was great like they were able to beat back a us backed coup and actually vote for um a socialist president. I would, I think it's good news for these other countries, but I do wonder here because we are still so fragmented. Like I think in the U S one of the issues is that there's always certain groups of people that consistently have it the worst. And it kind of, in a lot of these other places, you have such a critical mass of people that are doing really badly before you see like these types of big overhauls. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I do feel like in the U S we have a long way to go because sort of like as long as there's enough people that are reasonably comfortable or they kind of don't feel like their circumstances aren't really radicalizing them, there's always going to be kind of this like, let's just tread water. Let's not really do this. But these are countries like when you talk about Pinochet, like the ways those people were like tortured and stuff like for years and years and years, like that I don't think of most Americans really have a concept of what it's like to live under that type of terror. 
Um, and it, I, unfortunately, it looks like we're heading in that direction. I hope it doesn't get to that point. But sadly, I think it sometimes takes that for enough people to really start things over. Yeah. And I think what you said about the wealth gap being so large in the U.S. Uh, really kind of helps keep you know, people in position. That's kind of the way of capitalism. Um, I definitely think there's more unity in these countries because the wealth gap is not as far. You know, the same family could be on both sides of the coin, just like they can be here, but they're definitely in a different circumstance. So, um, but shout out to the people of Chile for coming together. Um, yeah, or felicidades. I think that's how you say it in Spanish. I wish them the best of luck. I really hope that this uh, process is something that we all can learn from and definitely look forward to. So I hope that was a great segue, Emily, because you got some good news for us. I do. And it's, it's you know, rare that we get to segue from one good news story to <laughs> the designated good news story. Um, exactly. But yeah, here we go. So this comes from an October 25th article by Richard Davies on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation website or ABC. Haha. Um, but it's abc.net.au um, titled All of South Australia's Power Comes from Solar Panels in World First for Major Jurisdiction. And I got additional information from a uh, article, an article on the Good News Network website um, by my boy Andy Corbley. And it's titled, Solar is Now the Cheapest Electricity in History and Just Met 100% of Demand in South Australia for First Time. So the ABC article explains that South Australia, quote, has become the first major jurisdiction in the world to be powered entirely by solar energy. For just over an hour on Sunday, October 11th, 100% of energy demand was met by solar panels alone. Uh, for reference, South Australia is more than twice the size of California in terms of square mileage and has a population of 1.76 million people. And I got that information from Wikipedia. Apologies for the teachers who taught me that that's not a legitimate research source, but I'm going <laughs> to do. Um, according to Audrey um, Zeibelman, uh, the chief executive of Australian Energy Market Operator, which is AEMO, uh, 77% of the energy was generated by, quote, consumers' rooftop solar systems, with the other 23% coming from what they call large-scale solar farms. Um, 288,000 homes, or about a third of all homes in South Australia, have solar panels. And, quote, AEMO is forecasting an additional 36,000 new solar rooftop systems will be installed in South Australia in the next 14 months. And um, according to the Good News Network article, quote, a combination of cloudless skies, low energy demand, and mild temperatures helped, cr helped create conditions for the landmark event. And quote, both sources uh, combined to make 1.37 gigawatt, oh, both sources, meaning the um, individual homeowners and the wind farms, or uh, solar farms, um, those combined, uh, quote, to make 1.37 gigawatts of available power, which would have generated 986 metric tons of CO2 and would normally require 1 million pounds of coal or around 100,000 gallons of gasoline. Um, so it's really cool that that was replaced. And also shout out to uh, Back to the Future, which is the only other time I've seen a 1 point something gigawatts number ever <laughs> <laughs> related to energy, 1.21 gigawatts. This is 1.37 gigawatts. Um, also on a more global note, the Good News Network article explains, quote, in a new energy report, the International Energy Agency, or IEA, 
says solar is now the cheapest form of electricity for utility companies to build. At the same time, uh, panel technology gets more efficient and prices for basic panels continues to fall. Uh, and investors are finding better and better finance financing deals. Also, quote, it adds that renewables will take over will overtake coal as the primary means of electricity generation worldwide by 2025. Noting wow. that, yeah, noting that according to their objectives and current trajectory, China will have expanded renewables by 15,000 ter- oh, sorry 1500 terawatts per hour by 2030, more than the electricity demand of the entire nations of Germany, France, and Italy last year. Whew. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a mouthful, but it's pretty cool. It's good news. <laughs> that is good news. I'm yeah. so happy to hear that. Me too. People, it can be done. It I think that's what the, the theme was for that whole segment. It can yes. be done. So we could do it. And sooner than, you know, you might think if you just put your mind to it. That's right. That's right. So put your money where your mouth is and get out there and be productive. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, thank you, Emily. That was a great story. And thank you, everybody, for listening. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Uh, Thank you so much for always supporting the show. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final selection today comes from a Danish band called Girls and Airports. They're so cool. Uh, their sound has been Rain described. As, I know, right? Girls and Airports. I was like, that sounds like me pre-pandemic. Um, <laughs> their sound has been described as a blend of Nordic jazz and indie rock and inspired by jazz, Afro, indie, Celtic, and pop music. The track is called Broke. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Mm-hmm.